Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Ladies and gentlemen, the president-elect, William Jefferson Clinton. It's January 20th, 1993, and Bill Clinton is being sworn into office by Chief Justice William Rehnquist. He is about to become the first Democratic president since Jimmy Carter left office a dozen years earlier. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. It's 40 degrees on the National Mall and a chilly wind blows as Clinton delivers his inaugural address. But he's talking about spring. A spring reborn in the world's oldest democracy that brings forth the vision and courage to reinvent America. He acknowledges the one-term president. He's just unseated. I salute my predecessor, President Bush, for his half-century of service to America. For America, this is a moment of generational transformation. Bush and the six presidents before him were all part of the World War II generation. Bill Clinton is now America's first baby boomer president. He's won this office by promising change. The sluggish economy was the top issue in the campaign, and Clinton scored points by portraying Bush as out of touch with everyday Americans. For Bill Clinton's party, though, this moment is much bigger. They've controlled the House for four decades at this point, and the Senate for most of that time, too. But other than Carter's ill-fated single term, the White House has eluded them for the past generation. This was said to be Bill Clinton's big achievement in the campaign. He had broken the Republican lock on the Electoral College. And now that he's been sworn in, Democrats finally have full control of Washington. Massive congressional majorities ready to move on a wish list years in the making and a president ready to sign whatever they pass. Their ambitions are vast. And so today we pledge an end to the era of deadlock and drift and a new season of American renewal has begun. Maya Angelou recites a poem. She stays on theme. Here. On the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. Republicans are an afterthought. The White House has been their bulwark against the permanent Democratic Congress, but now they've lost it to a Democrat who seems to have considerable political savvy. I was impressed with him as, and I still am, I mean, as one of the master politicians, certainly of my lifetime. Vin Weber, former Republican congressman, co-founder of the Conservative Opportunity Society, told me that when Bill Clinton took office, the Republicans knew they had their work cut out for them. As a candidate, Clinton had endured multiple scandals that were seen initially as politically fatal. 
but not only had he weathered them, he ended up winning by a comfortable margin. And in talking with Gingrich, I said we've got to be careful about how we deal with him, but we can't give away our basic principles, we can't give, give away our basic strategy. And yet, for all of Clinton's talent, for one glorious night, the President of the United States was also the king of rock and roll. And for all the Democrats' grand plans, within 48 hours of taking office, the party was over. Newt Gingrich had kept quiet on Inauguration Day, but the new president had already handed him the ingredients to ignite the kind of populist uproar that had become his specialty. For almost 15 years, Gingrich had employed his brand of politics against some big names, Charlie Diggs, Tip O'Neill, Jim Wright, even George H.W. Bush. Now, though, he would amplify everything against his biggest target yet. This is The Revolution. I'm Steve Kornacki. Episode 4, False Spring. Zoe Baird is supposed to represent all that is fresh and forward-looking about the new president, a modern feminist ideal. At age 40, she's an accomplished lawyer. She served in the Carter White House, worked her way up the corporate legal ladder, and now Clinton has nominated her to be his attorney general. When he made the pick in December 1992, her confirmation looked like a cakewalk. She was poised to become America's first ever female attorney general. But then, one week before Inauguration Day, everything turns. The New York Times breaks the news and the rest of the media snaps it up. Baird employed a Peruvian couple in this country illegally for almost two years. One is a babysitter, the other is a driver. This is a story from NBC's Lisa Myers. The attorney general designate sent the IRS a check for back taxes and penalties earlier this month. This case exposes America's dirty little secret. Two secrets, really. One that an estimated 1.5 million Americans flout the law by failing to pay Social Security taxes on household help. The other, that many of those involve illegal aliens. Technically, Baird and her husband had violated two laws, and they were paying the couple below minimum wage. But the provision against employing people without papers had never been enforced in Connecticut, where the family lived. Even when the news breaks, much of Washington shrugs. Among the power class, what Baird has done is not that uncommon. From both sides of the aisle, members of Congress indicate they see an honest mistake, nothing that might alter Baird's glide path to confirmation. But Newt Gingrich understands how something like this might look to people who aren't part of the power class or anywhere near it. A day after the Times scoop, he reads out a statement. Any small business that hired illegal aliens and failed to pay Social Security tax would be in deep trouble. It is inconceivable to have an attorney general nominee, someone who has sworn to uphold and enforce the nation's law doing something like this. Gingrich is pointing out what he calls a double standard. I call on President-elect Bill Clinton to withdraw the nomination of Zoe Barrett as attorney general if these charges are true. Others are sensing the potency of what the press has now dubbed nannygate and are joining in. Folks, she did a no-no. She put an ad in the paper, wanted to hire a nanny. No Americans applied, so she hired a couple from Peru. Illegal immigrants, folks. Rush Limbaugh is all over it, and he's got millions of listeners at this point. And it doesn't stay in the world of conservative talk radio. Major national media outlets now recognize and feed the brewing backlash. 
On ABC News, Cokie Roberts says that Baird, quote, made enough money to hire Mary Poppins. Gingrich's gut is right. Yet again, he's found that populist nerve. Just five days after the story breaks, it's time for Baird's confirmation hearing. And this is just one day before Clinton's inauguration. The senators on the committee tell Baird they're getting it from all sides. The chair of Senate Judiciary is a senator from Delaware named Joe Biden. It is my impression that it is not just me, but a significant portion of the population that uh, finds your action and the action of your husband to be on its face inconsistent with the responsibilities that you will have as Attorney General of the United States to enforce the very laws you knowingly violate. Alan Simpson is a moderate Republican from Wyoming and another member of the committee. He describes reaction from around the country. Um, Much of it from women who I think feel that they, as single parents or working mothers, did not have this advantage, and there's something stirring there that is very real. Before the committee can even vote on the nomination, and just two days after Clinton's inauguration, Zoe Baird withdraws. And finally, the Zoe Baird story. That Saturday evening, NBC anchor Garrick Utley concludes Nightly News with this commentary. What was it about? Moral outrage that a would-be attorney general broke a law? Partly. Was it envy, a popular reaction to the power and privilege of affluence? That too, no doubt. But what happened to Zoe Baird, I think, was even more than that. It was a warning shot aimed directly at Bill Clinton. The public's message to Bill Clinton was, to amend a famous phrase, Big Brother, we are watching you closely. This is supposed to be Bill Clinton's honeymoon. Instead, he's already on the defensive, taking on political water. And the Baird saga is only the beginning. The coming weeks and months are dominated by stories about missteps, controversies, and political blunders by the new administration. Gays in the military was not the issue Bill Clinton would have chosen for his first presidential news conference. This compromise is not everything I would have hoped for or everything that I have stood for but it is plainly a substantial step in the right direction. The White House sacking of the travel office is the story that won't go away. And a lot of interest in the president's haircut, the one that cost $200 and was holding up traffic at Los Angeles International Airport while a Beverly Hills hairstylist was... Instead of a honeymoon, the new president finds himself enduring a political nightmare. His poll numbers plummet faster than any of his predecessors. It lifts the spirits of the Republican minority and emboldens them too. And it leads the press to ask if Bill Clinton and his team are simply in over their heads. Dick Ephart was, by then, the House Majority Leader. He told me it was starting to feel very different in Washington. You did have a new media atmosphere in the country with a lot of people were listening out in the Midwest and the South, especially to Rush Limbaugh every day. And you'd hear his stuff coming back to you when you'd go home and talk to people. Hey, folks, liberals are in the White House. You know what you need? You need my newsletter. The Limbaugh letter attacks and exposes the liberals' real agenda, which is tax and spend. In the spring of 1993, Clinton is facing a full-fledged populist backlash, fueled in part by Limbaugh's three-hour daily radio slot and his syndicated TV show. 
you can still get my jumbo list of Bill Clinton's campaign promises. We're keeping track of what the Clinton gang's up to. Protect yourself, your family, and your friends against liberal disinformation. Call 800... Gingrich himself is doing what he can to stoke the backlash. But no longer does he have to do all the work or even most of it. By now, the House Republican ranks are filled with Republicans schooled in the new style. By June... Time magazine publishes a devastating cover that calls Clinton, quote, the incredible shrinking president, and his approval rating falls under 40 percent. That giant wish list Democrats were so eager to move on back in January, it's sitting idle. Now they're just trying to get a budget passed, and even that is suddenly in peril. And so, it increasingly seems, is the Clinton presidency itself. everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. Let's go back to the 1992 campaign. Bill Clinton is promising to be what he calls, quote, a different kind of Democrat. There are a new generation of Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. That's an image that would ultimately prove easier to project than to live up to. In order to understand the battle that erupts over Clinton's budget in the first year of his presidency, the context is important. We've spent much of this podcast talking about the decades-long stranglehold on Congress that Democrats have enjoyed. But as I explained earlier, when it comes to the presidency, they've experienced almost nothing but futility. Coming into 1992, Democrats have lost five of the last six presidential elections, and most of them haven't even been close twice in that time. In 1972 and in 1984, they've carried just a single state. Why are Democrats losing presidential races so badly and so often? To Bill Clinton, it's because they've lost touch with the middle class, the voters who decide elections. In a way, Clinton is seeing the shifting political landscape the same way Newt Gingrich sees it. Democrats have made it too easy for Republicans to tag them as tax-happy, soft on crime, and friendly to big government. In short, too liberal. Clinton is the leader of a group of Democrats who want to redefine the party. They call themselves the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC. Many of them, but not all, are from the South. Our DLC has over 600 federal, state, and local elected officials. People who are brimming with ideas and energy. People who are out there on the firing line every day actually solving problems and somehow getting the electoral support they need to go forward. Dick Gephardt was also a part of the DLC at this time, and I spoke with him about how they were trying to change the party. 
The Democratic Party was a very different party in those days than it is today. When I came to the House in 1976, the Democrats had literally almost every seat in the southern states. But by 1988, 1990, 1992, we were really losing a lot of those seats. We felt that the only way we can win nationally is to hold on to enough of the votes from the more conservative states. He says that Clinton was trying to halt and reverse the defection of the middle class from the Democratic Party. We had a a little book we put out called The Yellow Brick Road, which is the road to opportunity, which is the issue that we thought really needed to be stressed in campaigns. You mentioned that word opportunity. Um, That's the word that, that comes up when we talk to Newt's folks, uh, Vin Weber and Bob Walker, they, and they said that's the word they wanted to own, too. Was there a, was there a sort of um, a, a competition there to kind of own that concept? Yeah, I, I'm sure of it. I mean, the problem you have with uh, just being for social programs is people really dislike welfare or giveaways to people that they didn't earn. People have a real umbrage at using their tax paid dollars to give to people that don't work, that don't put out effort. These are the themes that Bill Clinton emphasizes when he runs for president. He calls himself a protector of, quote, the forgotten middle class, the people who, he says, quote, work hard and play by the rules. When he calls himself a different kind of Democrat, it's his way of telling voters he's not like the Democrats they've been rejecting. And he goes further. He's for the death penalty. He says he'll reform welfare. And the key, when he announces his campaign for president, he promises that he will cut taxes for the middle class. For 12 years, while middle class incomes went down, the Republicans raised taxes on middle class people. And while the incomes of our wealthiest citizens went up, their taxes were lowered. That's wrong, and the middle class needs a break. During the primaries, there's some resistance from the left, but Clinton wins the Democratic nomination and then sets out to unseat Bush. His platform really is different from what previous Democratic nominees have run on. And by the fall, he's well ahead in the polls. The economy has weakened Bush, and Clinton is connecting with exactly the kind of middle-class voters he's been targeting. At the same time, the budget deficit is getting worse. That 1990 tax deal we talked about in the last episode, the one that was supposed to stop all that red ink, It hasn't done that, at least not yet. It forces candidate Clinton to confront a big question, one that could make or break his candidacy. It's asked about two weeks before the election by Jim Lehrer, a moderator of the final presidential debate. You are promising to create jobs, reduce the deficit, reform the health care system, rebuild the infrastructure, guarantee college education for everyone who is qualified, among many other things, all with financial pain, only for the very rich. Some people are having trouble apparently believing that is possible. Should they have that concern? No. There are many people who believe that the only way we can get this country turned around is to tax the middle class more and punish them more. But the truth is that middle class Americans are basically the only group of Americans who have been taxed more in the 1980s and during the last 12 years, even though their incomes have gone down. The wealthiest Americans have been taxed much less, even though their incomes 
have gone up. To President George Bush, this is the chance to convince Americans that Clinton isn't actually a different kind of Democrat. Mr. and Mrs. America, when you hear him say, we're going to tax only the rich, watch your wallet, because his figures don't add up, and he's going to sack it right to the middle class taxpayer and lower if he's going to pay for all the spending programs he proposed. But Clinton is emphatic. Now, I will tell you this, I will not raise taxes on the middle class to pay for these programs. If the money does not come in there to pay for these programs, we will cut other government spending or we will slow down the phase end of the programs. I am not going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for these programs. Bush tries to tell voters they shouldn't trust Clinton. Clinton fires back that Bush is in no position to talk about trust. After all, he's the guy who said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then raised them anyway. And that's enough for voters. On election day, it's not even close. Clinton wins with 370 electoral votes. Bush receives the lowest share of the vote any incumbent president has received in 80 years. On this day, with high hopes and brave hearts, in massive numbers, the American people have voted to make a new beginning. Okay. So now we're back in February of 1993, and Clinton's been sworn in. He's already off to a bad start. The Zoe Baird saga, as we said, is just the first of a seemingly endless series of early uproars. Amidst all of this, Clinton has to put a budget together, and he's got a problem. It turns out that his critics were right. That idea of a tax cut for the middle class, he's junking it. And actually, he's decided middle class Americans are going to need to pay more in taxes. On February 15th, Clinton speaks to the nation from the Oval Office. He sits behind the Resolute desk, hands crossed in front of him. At multiple points, charts appear on screen to illustrate the economic challenges. He singles out the middle class and he speaks to them directly. I had hoped to invest in your future by creating jobs, expanding education, reforming health care and reducing the debt without asking more of you. And I've worked harder than I've ever worked in my life to meet that goal. But I can't, because the deficit has increased so much beyond my earlier estimates and beyond even the worst official government estimates from last year. We just have to face the fact that to make the changes our country needs, more Americans must contribute today so that all Americans can do better tomorrow. Politically, this is an especially perilous reversal for Clinton. Simply raising taxes is unpopular enough. Add to that the fact that his prime vulnerability as a candidate was his character. Questions about his honesty, trustworthiness. His enemies have been calling him Slick Willie, the political equivalent of a used car salesman. And now they have more ammunition than ever to say they were right. Here's the truth about it. He never intended to give you a middle class tax cut. He just said it because he thought that it would help win the election. Now, you may say politics as usual. It is, but you wanted change. So here's a president facing big deficits and calling for tax hikes to balance the books. And really, it's pretty similar to what George H.W. Bush had done with the tax hike deal in 1990. But remember, that deal in 1990 had torn the Republican Party in half. Newt Gingrich had led a revolt while the old guard Republican leadership had stood with Bush. Now, though, on the Republican side, there is nothing but unity. I think by the time Clinton came into office, 
most all Republicans believe that tax cutting was central to the Republican agenda. They believed that we could take the majority in the House if we stuck with it. They did not believe that the deficit was a looming threat. This is Vin Weber again. He actually retired from Congress in 1992, but he remained involved in Republican efforts to win the House majority. By 1993, the Republican Party has moved a long way toward embracing the gospel of tax cutting that Jack Kemp had started preaching back in the 1970s. But Bush's defeat in 1992 had intensified their view on this subject. Among Republicans, it is now taken as a given that Bush's tax deal hadn't just been bad policy, it had been bad politics, that it cost him the presidency. I think at that point, uh, most people saw that for the Republican Party to support a tax increase was a self-destructive act. And even before Clinton has addressed the nation, Newt Gingrich has a script ready to go. Here he is in a C-SPAN interview talking about Clinton. If you look carefully at what he's describing, he is clearly setting the stage for a bigger government, for more pork barrel, for the politicians to have more control. And instead of having a middle class tax cut, he's setting the stage clearly for a middle class tax increase. A couple nights after his Oval Office address, Clinton formally unveils his plan to a joint session of Congress. 98.8% of America's families will have no increase in their income tax rates. He tries to emphasize that the rich will foot most of the bill. For the wealthiest, those earning more than $180,000 per year, I ask you all who are listening tonight to support a raise in the top rate for federal income taxes from 31 to 36%. But he does propose a new tax the middle class will feel, something he calls a, quote, broad-based energy tax. Because it does not discriminate against any area, unlike a carbon tax that's not too hard on the coal states, unlike a gas tax that's not too tough on people who drive a long way to work. Clinton's address sets off months of wrangling in Congress. And really, with Republicans all lining up in opposition, it's wrangling among Democrats. They have big majorities in the House and the Senate, but that doesn't mean they're all eager to vote for a tax increase. Representatives from coal country shoot down the energy tax, which sends Democrats casting about to find more revenue. They land on raising the gas tax. Here's Dick Gephardt again. People get what they paid for in highways and bridges, so... You ought to be able to explain this to your people at home if you go back and patiently explain it. But, he told me, his caucus didn't think so. Many of them said, I can't vote for anything. Some of them said, a few cents. I said, could you vote for 10 cents? And everybody said, no, we can't do that. We'll, We'll have ads run against us in the next election saying you raised the gasoline tax. It'll kill me. And I said, I got, I know, but... We got to do something. In August, the bill goes in front of the House with a 4.3 cent gas tax increase. The vote is going to be close. The plan is unpopular. Congressional offices have been flooded with phone calls opposing it. Every single Republican is a no vote, and dozens of Democrats are too, or at least they want to be. Clinton is facing the possibility of just what Bush faced in 1990, a humiliating and politically devastating defeat on his budget. Gephardt has asked the freshman Democrats in the House to hold off on voting. He knows they could be particularly vulnerable on this when the 1994 midterms come around. There's about 20 or 30 other Democrats Gephardt just can't get a firm read on. He's hoping they'll come around and spare some of the freshmen from having to vote yes. And they all told me, if I have to vote for this, I'm going to lose. I said, I know, I don't want you to have to vote for it, but just hang up. 
So the votes go up. It's like a basketball game. You know, you're looking at the scoreboard at each end of the building. The House vote is set for 15 minutes, and as the clock ticks down to zero, it's still incredibly close. Democrats need a simple majority here, 218 votes, to pass this bill. And now they're at 217, just one short. There was only one freshman who didn't vote. That was Marjorie Margolis Misvinsky. And so I went over to her and I said, Marjorie, this is it. You have to vote yes. This is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the party. It's not about Clinton. It's about the country. You have to do this. Please do this. Mesvinsky represents a suburban district outside Philadelphia. And for months, she's been sending signals that she'll vote no. She knows, and all of her colleagues know, how vulnerable a yes vote would make her in the midterm. There are probably 400 people on the floor. Newt Gingrich is there, of course. He's standing with his ally, Pennsylvania's Bob Walker. She marched down the aisle. Everyone is on their feet, watching intensely. And as she plopped down the green card... To vote yes. The Republicans stood in the aisles and waved and sang bye-bye Marjorie. (laughs) Bob Walker is the first one to wave, and then others join in. For a party that just lost an important vote, the Republicans sure look very happy, especially Newt Gingrich. This is precisely the contrast he's always wanted. Republicans are sounding a clear and unified message, one after another. They are calling this the largest tax increase in American history, though that is disputed by some. And now Clinton and the Democrats will have to own it. Gingrich holds a press conference shortly after the vote and enlists Congressman Bill Paxson, then chairing the committee to get Republicans elected to the House, to spell out how they'll use their loss. Uh, Newt Gingrich said it best, and it's a message we're going to repeat over and over and over again. Each and every Democrat who cast a vote for this plan tonight was the deciding vote. We're going to put a billboard up in every one of their districts, and we're going to remind the voters of their districts uh, that these are folks that committed the worst atrocity of all. I believe this will lead to a recession next year. This is the Democrat machine's recession, and each one of them will be held personally accountable. In fact, that's exactly what happens. Unfortunate. That describes Marjorie Masvinsky's deciding vote that gave us the biggest tax increase in history. This is an ad Masvinsky's Republican challenger would eventually run in 1994. One more word about a congresswoman who breaks her promises. Unforgivable. In the end, Bill Clinton gets his budget through. It passes the Senate by the slimmest of margins. Vice President Al Gore has to break a 50-50 tie, and then Clinton signs it. But the process has been long and politically draining. Meanwhile, Republicans have played it exactly the way Gingrich wanted them to, the way he's always wanted them to. And they can feel the momentum building for 1994. More than ever, it feels like the Republican Party is becoming Newt's party. And so maybe it's not surprising that right around the same time, the man who's led Republicans in the House for years decides his time is up. After the break, Bob Michael, nickname Mr. Nice Guy, makes it official. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. It's Monday, October 4th, 1993, two months after the House vote on Clinton's budget. In Peoria, Illinois, Bob Michael is on TV and he's crying. And her family, uh, without whom I could never have achieved whatever measure of success I have enjoyed over these many years of public life. The local news station, WHOI, runs a banner across the bottom of the screen. It says, quote, calling it quits. And I think it's a good time to hang it up. Uh, With that, Congressman Bob Michael announced he would not seek a 20th term in the U.S. House. In his remarks, he criticized both Republicans and Democrats for what he calls trashing Congress by not being willing to compromise on key issues. Michael flies to Washington, and later that same day, he holds a press conference. And the very first question he gets is about who's, quote, trashing Congress. Uh, Would you say that... Somebody who says we've had corrupt one-party rule for four decades is trashing the Congress? Well, that, uh, uh, that's, that's pretty much of a, of a... He's blinking and then closes his eyes completely when he says... Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's an opinion of some. And there's been no question that, you know, it's been one-party rule around here all during The Republican tenure, minority leader is 70 years old. He served more than half of his life in the House. On this day, he looks sharp. Pinstripe suit, striped tie, not a hair out of place. Classy. When I came down here uh, some 37 years ago, my charge was out of the Junior Chamber of Commerce. Bob, go down to Washington, cut the cost of government, uh, uh, be an, an exponent of private in- free enterprise. And, um, you know, that was about my charge. There wasn't any uh, thing about uh, revolutionizing this and changing this or that, but uh, it's changed. Just about anyone who's listening knows the subtext. Newt Gingrich and the pressure Bob Michael's been feeling from Newt and his allies for more than a decade. I've had my uh, detractors uh, over my period as a leader for whatever reason, but that's who I am, that's what I was, and and uh, others will uh, maybe project a different image. Uh, and then... Michael strikes a wistful note. I wish I could have been more effective at times, but uh, lacking the numbers, you know, you can only expect so much uh, success. Can we back up, Congressman, and tell us, for those of us who weren't in Peoria, why are you leaving? Why am I leaving? Well, I said, first of all, had George Bush won the presidency uh, uh, in his bid for re-election, I would have felt... The reporters in the room start asking explicitly about Newt Gingrich. Newt has made no secret of his plan to run for party leader. Obviously, Gingrich now is a front-runner to replace you. What kind of leader do you think he would be? Well, uh, Newt will have to prove that. But uh, I've we've had a very cordial relationship in the last uh, in the, uh, years that we've been the number one and two spots. And uh, I, I have an And Michael says he thinks Newt has learned some things by observing him. Newt is a very able, capable... 
uh, individual and uh, articulate and uh, very well read and uh, people ought not to sell Newt short. Well, sir, would you characterize those comments as, as you're being enthusiastic about Newt Gingrich? As, uh... Well, I don't want to get myself in the business here as I'm leaving, uh, picking and choosing. Despite what Bob Michael says, there's little question about who will be taking his job as House Minority Leader. And make no mistake, that is what most people think the job will still be called after the 1994 midterm, Minority Leader. Republicans have weakened Bill Clinton during his first year in office, but the idea of the House flipping in 94 is as unfathomable as ever. At one point, Michael starts doing the math out loud. Quite frankly, we're at 176 members, and the normal uh, pickup in a first year following a presidential election for the opposition party is between 15 and 19 seats. It gets a bit dizzying as he walks through how the numbers have changed over the years. In the Carter administration, with only 143, picked up 15, and then uh, and then uh, 38, and got up. He arrives at this answer. I'm sure it will be uh, somewhat short of what I would re- um, call for my being Speaker of the House, and so. Uh, if that's the ultimate prize and it's unattainable in the next two years, why not take the, the gracious the gracious way out? Now, in this podcast, you've heard some people suggest that Bob Michael was content to remain in the minority, or at least that he was resigned to it. Now, as he's retiring, it might seem like that's what he's saying. But his longtime aide, Ray LaHood, who, remember, knew him very well, takes issue with that. If Bob Michael were sitting here today... Um, If you were talking to him, one of the things he would tell you is his goal as minority leader was always trying to get Republicans elected because he wanted to be speaker. The idea that he wanted to be in the minority his entire career is complete baloney. People who say that don't know Bob Michael. The bottom line, though, is that on this day in October 1993, Bob Michael doesn't see the possibility of a Republican House majority emerging anytime soon. And he's hardly alone in that. What he does see is what he calls, quote, a big generational gap. My style of leadership and my my sense of values and my whole thinking processes is giving way to a new generation. And I accept that. And uh, that's probably the way it ought to be. But I'm really much more comfortable operating in the methodology by which we did when I I first came to the Congress. Is that going to be a more confrontational generation? Is that what you're saying? Oh, could very well be. If they think that's what makes points or that's what's good for the country in their eyes. Well, how do you analyze with that? Bob Michael's announcement is the beginning of the end of an era. He'll remain minority leader for another year until his term concludes, And there's no suspense about who will then succeed him. Michael speaks on a Monday. This is Thursday, three days later. The sun is out, just a few clouds in the distance when Newt Gingrich descends the Capitol steps into a crowd of Republican members of Congress. Let me, uh, first of all, thank all of my colleagues for coming out here and and, uh, for agreeing to be with me today. I'm going to have a brief statement. And then, Newt stands uh, behind a podium draped with microphones. Dozens of colleagues flank him, squinting into the sun. We Republicans believe in freedom, free speech, free elections, free markets, 
and the rights and responsibilities of free men and women. He uses language that he has, by this date, used many, many times before. We House Republicans face an extraordinary challenge in seeking to replace the welfare state and to help the American people create an opportunity society. Gingrich doesn't even need to say why he's making this speech. Everyone knows. And he has no real competition to lead the House Republicans. With the already committed support of over 100 members of the House Republican Conference, I believe we can build a team that can fulfill our rendezvous with destiny. With their help, with their commitment, with their talents, I am convinced we can renew American civilization. When he's done, John Boehner, then just a second-term congressman from Ohio, takes the podium. And we not only see Newt Gingrich as the next Republican leader in the House, we see him as the first Republican speaker in 40 years here in the House of Representatives. And soon, the Republican Party will make everybody see it. That's next time on The Revolution. We made multiple requests to speak with Newt Gingrich for this podcast, but he was never made available. And then, after this series was released, we did hear from him. And you'll hear that conversation in Episode 7. From MSNBC, this is the fourth of six episodes of The Revolution. If you like what you've heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. The Revolution was written and hosted by me, Steve Kornacki. The series is produced by Franny Kelly, Ursula Summer, and Adam Naboa. It's edited by Allison McAdam. Our associate producer is Eva Ruth Moravec. Special thanks to Lacey Roberts. Sound designed by Ramtin Arablui. Bryson Barnes is our technical director, and he wrote our music. Soraya Gage is our executive producer. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.